Thanks for spending time with Fusion Community Church through our podcast. These can be accessed anytime through iTunes or on our website, fusioncommunity.church. We hope you enjoy today's message from Pastor Andrew Fetter. Hey, uh, we're in a series. We're on week four in the first three weeks. To give you a quick recap, uh, we've been looking at this promise Jesus gives us in John 10.10 that he's come to give us life and give it more abundantly, this idea that God has made us for more than oftentimes we experience. And in week one, we talked about in Ephesians chapter one that there is a shift that we have to make. So many of these shifts are not really things we do as much as it is the way we look at ourselves and the way we look at God, we look at our relationship with him. So we have to shift from doing more to walking with Christ more day in and day out, a more readiness uh, to experience his presence. We live in a culture that wants to try to tell us that if we try harder and do more, we'll get what we want that will bring us peace and joy. And the truth is we'll never get there. The best that promise has is a leaky bucket that will never satisfy or sustain us. Only Jesus who says, I've come to give you life more abundantly than you can find in any other way. So we have to follow him. And, and sometimes, you know, we, we're given this promise by Jesus that, that his, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But how many times have we been guilty? We're in the yoke with Jesus, right? Pulling the wagon of our lives. And we're like pulling like, come on, Jesus, keep up. Let's go. Come on, Jesus. Like we're dragging Jesus in the yoke, and, and we're not operating with him, the one leading us, and us following him. And that creates the burdens and the stress we often have. So it, it's being aware of what, what Christ wants in our lives day to day. Chapter 1 talked about that. In chapter 2, we looked at how we, we considered how we look at ourselves in the mirror, that, that we are, are not just a volunteer, but we're a masterpiece, Right, God just didn't say, hey, when you get time, do this on the side. No, he designed us with a masterpiece mission, specific and unique calling on our lives that we've been created for, and he wants to lead us in that more abundant life to discover what that looks like. And then in chapter 3, we looked at motivation for living. That we're not to be motivated or driven by guilt. It's not a tool of God's. He wants to motivate us and drive us through love through his love for us and the love we, get to, we experience that we get to share with others. Now, as we enter into the fourth chapter of Ephesians, there is a subtle shift that begins to happen. In the first three chapters, the Apostle Paul is talking to individuals, uh, us as we see ourselves, us in relationship to God. Now in chapter four, he's going to begin to transition us to look at us collectively as one body, as the church body. What does this mean? If we live these lives individually and we're, we're focusing more on Jesus and who he's created us to be as a masterpiece and our motivation is love, what's going to happen then and how, what, what image does he give us of how the church is structured and gifted to live out of this new identity? So in Ephesians chapter four and verse one, this is what he writes. It says, therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. However, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. There's that uniqueness again. 
Now, when we really look at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4, we could say very simply that the Apostle Paul, as he's laying out what a, what a, 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 a successful, beautiful life looks like, he's using Jesus as a model, even though he's not using Jesus' name in the text, right? He starts right off, you've been called of God, so live a life worthy of your calling. Well, that's Jesus. He says, be humble, be gentle, be patient. Well, well, that's Jesus. We see that in the model of Jesus. And it's interesting, the word be there, because you can tell by someone's behavior if they're patient, if they're gentle, if they're humble, right? But, but with our kids, we never, we never tell them like, hey, I need you to do humble, right? We don't say, I need you to do patience. We don't say, hey, I need you to do gentleness with the cat because you're going to kill her, right? We don't use that word. We use be, a state of being, a consideration of ourselves and others, right? Be humble, be gentle, be patient with each other. Paul continues, says, make allowance for each other's faults. I don't even know why Paul mentions that, because we're so good at that, right? Just humanity. I mean, look at our society. We're so good at making allowance for people to have other perspectives or other opinions. No, this is a big deal. I mean, how well do we do with this in our own house? To make allowance for differences in one another. Make allowances for each other's struggle with a short temper or, 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 or struggle with identity and the way we see ourselves not being valuable and wanting to get affirmation. I mean, do we make allowance for each other's faults? Paul's kind of talking about this as an aspiration for our lives. He says, remain united in God's spirit. Find unity in God's spirit at a time in which a world around us says, no, you, be identified by your ideology by your political affiliation, be identified by your theology. No, he says be united in God's spirit. There can be diversity, diversity of thought, diversity in us, but our unity comes from the spirit of God. Be bound together with peace because there's one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one God and Father of all. We see Jesus' life in this list, don't we, representing the condition of our hearts? And the emphasis here is unmistakably, it's more about being than what we do. Because if our being is right, if, we're, if we see ourselves as God has created us and redeemed us, then the things that we do are going are gonna to be the, out, the organic byproduct of that identity. So to walk with Jesus, to believe we're his masterpiece, to use love as our motivating factor, and a love that's not defined like it is in this world of what I take or what I get from you, but a love that's modeled in Christ that says, this is what I'm willing to do for you. This is what I'm willing to give up of myself for others. That's a life inspired by Jesus. That's a successful life. It's what Ephesians 4 talks about. Last week, we talked about that word success. And I asked you the question, how would you define success? Typically in our culture, the, the, the word success is defined to be by, by uh, what you park in the driveway or how big your driveway is or when you leave your driveway, the places you get to travel and post all over Facebook, right? Normally, we think those are the things that are the metrics of success, but, but you can have all those things and have no success at all and be in debt up to your eyeballs, so they're not really good indications. So I presented to you a different definition of the word success according to uh, former pastor and author John Maxwell. When asked about his own life, now that he's in his 70s, in, in, in his uh, mid to late 70s, and reflecting on his development and his own growth following Jesus, and he said, well, how do you define success? And he said, this is what I kind of figured I was going to define success for starting in my mid-40s. He said, when the people who know you the best like you the most. And that's the kind of success you can't buy. It's the kind of success you can't really work for and earn. It's either the organic byproduct of the life you live, or it's still lingering out there as something you aspire to. And it's not really something somebody on the outside can measure, can they? Because only those closest to you are going to know whether they like you or not. And only those you're closest with, you're going to know, do you like them or not? I mean, I mean, only those in your closest circle will know if you've scaled that ladder of success. 
You're aware of that concept, right? The ladder of success. It's a visual that's often used in business writings. It was made famous a few decades ago by author Stephen Covey. A New York Times bestselling book was written. It gave this idea, and, and, but, but he wasn't the first to come up with it. The origin of this concept, the ladder of success, can actually be traced back to the early 20th century, 1915, in a newspaper article called the, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. We have this idea that the, the ladder of success is this thing where these opportunities are rungs in the ladder, and, and there are different steps. And if we hit all the opportunities, we're going to ascend the ladder and we're going to find success, right? You can kind of see it here. And there's a million different graphics on the internet with this idea of, of the, uh, the ladder of success. But the whole focus is on try more, try more, try more. You're going to fail, that's okay, but get back on the horse and start riding again. Even in this graphic, it says try, try, try again until you succeed. That's how you get to be successful. So it starts with all these words, and the feet are on the different rungs, 10%, 20%. It says, I won't, I can't, I don't know how. I wish I could. What is it? Wait, I think I might. I might. I think I can. I can. I will. I did. Right? That's the kind of the aspiration in our culture of success, all these opportunities that we have. And, and yet, what does it do in us when we're trying to, to be successful according to the world's standards? We fill our lives with so much stuff to try to get there. And the pace of our lives accelerates at an unsustainable rate of speed. Because we set goals and we chase them down no matter what they cost. And we say yes to difficult challenges at work because we want to put ourselves in a position for a promotion. So we work overtime. We want to demonstrate the kind of employee we are. We want to be the first one there and the last one to leave. We do everything we can to win, whatever a win looks like. We say yes to every opportunity we have that might lead to progress. We get up early. We stay up late. We focus on work. We even keep our eyes on competitors and rivals because that puts gas in our tank to drive us forward. We even do this with our kids, right? We push on them to be, we we, we push heavily for them to be successful. You you can do better than this. We push them on grades and we want them to excel in sports and, and in hobbies that they have. We want to find places for them to be a part of in the community so they can write it on their transcripts and applications for college and they can apply for scholarships. All these things, just the thought of them are exhausting. And they're good things. They're not bad things. It's good to set goals in our lives, good to set goals in business, good to set goals for the church. But where we keep our balance is how we define what's success and what's not. Like the definition earlier, where the people who know me the best like me the most. The the beginning of Ephesians 4 is a framework for a successful life, the Jesus way of life. Live a life worthy of God's calling. He's called you. Live a life worthy of his calling. Be humble, be gentle, be patient. Make allowances for others, show mercy. Stay united in peace. United in God's spirit, be bound together in peace. There's one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one God and Father who is in all, one faith, one baptism, one salvation. We all want to climb the ladder of success, but here's the question we don't often ask. Have we put the ladder up on the wrong wall? Is it leaning on the wrong wall? Because when you reach the top, what happens if you reach the top and you look around and the people that matter most to you aren't there anymore? What if they were the cost to get there? What if it's not to get to the top of the ladder? You realize, oh, this took me to a place I didn't really want to be if I knew this is what it's going to cost. That you had the wrong number one priority. Jesus says in Mark 8, he even says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul in the journey. We need to discover the power of taking a few moments in the busyness of life to recalibrate around what really matters most. Because isn't it true, we can get so driven and so focused on all we've got to get done that that's all we see and we have blinders to everything else. 
We need to see the power of taking moments in the busyness of life and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us as we recalibrate around what matters most, who we are, especially as followers of God, and what God wants for us. Then we'll do the things God wants us to do as we live in the reality of that identity. You could even call these moments white space, moments where we evaluate, hey, is my ladder on the right wall, or am I climbing a ladder that when I get to the top, I'm not going to want anything to do with? It won't be that enjoyable because I'll have no one left to celebrate with. We can put our law on the, the or our ladder on the professional success wall, right? We can put our ladder on the financial success wall. We can put it on the educational success. We can put it on social success, We're trying to get everybody to like us and think well of us. Or we can choose to put our ladder on the Christ-centered, others-centered success, that that one that that where Christ is revealed in us more than anything else, and those who are closest to us like us the most. Jesus, after all, said the greatest among us will be the least, those who serve. And then what does Jesus do immediately after he presents this this challenge? He kneels down, and, and the God of the universe begins to wipe and clean the feet, the filthy feet of his disciples. It wouldn't be long after that, he would be arrested and they would scatter and he would lay down his life on the cross for them and they wouldn't even have the courage to be there at the foot of the cross as he was breathing his last, most of them. I want to share with you a short video that kind of just breaks down this idea of our need for white space in our day-to-day lives. What is it and how do we implement it? So, what is white space? White space is a strategic pause taken between activities. Whether a half a second or three seconds or half an hour, these pauses when they are laced through the busyness of our days become the oxygen that allows everything else to catch fire. White space can be recuperative, and this is to reboot your exhausted brain and body, or it can be constructive, where it's used to drive business results. And this is time spent on innovation and strategy and professional reflection, and you don't need long stretches of time. In fact, Bill assigned you to do this in the opening session. Now, what's really, really fascinating is that if you took an MRI scan of your brain during the supposed pause, you would see that it's a pause in your schedule, but it's far from empty. In that MRI, in the default neural network of your mind, you would see insight and introspection and memory and creativity all linked to the activity that is going on in your brain during that supposed pause. Now, great leaders naturally use white space. Jack Welch, who was also mentioned, elevated GE's value by 4,000% during his tenure there, and he unfailingly spent an hour a day in what he called looking out of the window time. Bill Gates, when he was at Microsoft, spent two think weeks every year where he would lock himself in an isolated cottage. White space has no rules. It has no goals. It is a boundaryless freedom experience where your mind can play and improvise and follow instinct. And it gives us permission to think the unthunk thought. So, how can you and your team get more white space? You must decrapify your workflow 
And I'm going to teach you today a simple two-step plan that we've taught to thousands of people so that you can begin walking in Monday morning and teaching your team a different way to work. Are you ready? Okay. Step one is going to be become conscious of the thieves. Step two, defeat them with the questions. Are you ready? Okay. A diabolical aspect of busyness is that it always feels like it's our fault. It always does. And your team at home may be feeling this free-floating guilt, like if they could only find the right podcast or a filing system that somehow the tidal wave would be tamed. But that's not what our research shows. We studied busyness, and we found no less than 33 unique sources of pressure, each cascading down one upon the other, upon the other, upon the other, and eventually onto you. This includes pressures of the economy, the seasonality of your industry, senior leadership behaviors, on and on and on, until the final recipient of this flood of pressure is you. Busyness is not simply a personal problem. So then we analyzed the 33 and we found certain themes emerged. We saw four main drivers that fueled overload, and the irony and the surprise is that they were all positive assets that had run amok. We call them the thieves of productivity, and here's what they are. They are drive, excellence, information, and activity. Now, they're necessary, but when they're taken to the extremes, they become easily corrupted. Drive becomes overdrive, and excellence becomes perfectionism, and information becomes information overload, and activity becomes frenzy. And what happens is they lure us into a pace and pressure that can actually reduce our overall effectiveness. The thieves operate along a psychological construct called the hedonic treadmill, as in hedonism. And it says this, it says, whatever we have, we will adapt, and soon we will want more. But if you want more white space, you're going to have to purposefully design where and how much you apply drive excellence information and activity because they should serve you. Now, the thieves are also linked to our personalities. So some of you in this room will identify most strongly with drive. You like to climb the hill and then climb the next hill and then climb the next. And some of you identify with excellence, and that's me. And I'm going to tell you right from the start that I love perfectionists. I love you and me. Because wherever you are, because you and me, we are responsible for so much excellence and specificity and beauty in this world. And the only problem is that we also get a little bit too kind of... We get, too, we get too sort of, sort of a little, little kind of CDO, which is OCD with the letters alphabetized. You know, we get too tight, too tight. <laughs> My husband is also a perfectionist. He has a sign on his wall. It is a Brian Wilson quote. Beware the lollipop of mediocrity. Lick it once and you suck forever. <laughs> now, some of you love information. 
information. Oh, you live, you live to open up the dashboards, the spreadsheets, the scoreboards that you love to binge on that information. And then some of you love activity. And activity folks like to make a box and then check it. And then make it and check it and 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 make it and check it. And this is how they do it. And every single one of the thieves has a value and every single one has a fault. So which one carries you away at times? And do you see, do you see how a wonderful thing has just happened? Do you see how this short conversation on the thieves has moved them for you from unconscious to conscious? And now the next step is to deepen that shift by strengthening them, by labeling them when they appear. So here's how you do it. When you notice that you have planned nine projects for the same month, you say inside your head, oh, oh, that's the thief of drive. And when you find yourself fighting with a bullet point that is autocorrect dodging you like a rebellious teenager, and you're not going to make it make you use a dash and you just, oh, and you stop and you say, oh, oh, he, that's the thief of excellence. And you catch yourself. You use language to out them. Just like your time in the presence of the thieves, that is a space that will be filled. Unless you learn to install mental filters that interrupt that process. And the filters that I'm going to teach you are the second step in your two-step plan. You remember, become conscious of the thieves. We did that. Now defeat them with the questions. Are you ready? Here are the white space simplification questions. Is there anything I can let go of? Where is good enough good enough? What do I truly need to know? And what deserves my attention? And I'll tell you that in 13 years, we've built a lot of white space content. But the truth is that these 25 words are all you need to change the way that your team works forever. And it's true. And if you pay attention, they all map back to the thieves. Drive needs to hear, is there anything I can let go of? Informa uh, excellence needs to hear, where is good enough, good enough? Information needs to hear, what do I truly need to know? And activity, activity, activity needs to hear, what deserves my attention? Now, by the way, the thieves, the questions, and another model that I'm about to cover are all going to be posted on a special web page for you, so you don't have to write them down. I'll give it to you in a second. <laughs> Applause for the web page. That's good. Now, the thieves are the cornerstone of what we call a reductive mindset. So when we commit to be reductive, we develop habitual ways of thinking that repeatedly let go, surrender, renounce, and strip away the unnecessary. Let me give you a couple of such as examples for your team. So corporate folks and donor folks out there, if your talented teams invite 14 people to a meeting just in case, you need to teach them to be reductive. And church folks, if your staff feels the need to execute on every single idea that a congregant shares, you need to teach them to be reductive. And all folks, if you spend your precious weekends going to every birthday and retirement party regardless of your affection level for the guest of honor, you need to be reductive because life has gotten too full and we have to learn to let go.
Can you, can you identify with any of those five things? The idea of the drive and the excellence and the information and the activity, right? You got to climb a mountain, climb a mountain, climb a mountain. Maybe you're married to one of those. There's like, there's always drive. There's always something else to do. Or maybe you're married to that perfectionist. And, you know, I, I sometimes like when, when the girls clean their rooms and I'm there, it's different than when mom is there, right? When they put their clothes away and I'm there, it's different than when mom is there. Partly because I don't even know what drawers everything goes in. She knows where it all goes. But the bottom line is she, she makes a great statement there at the end. Life has gotten so full, we need to let it go. And so reductive mindset. We think about being productive, right? That goes back to even shift number one, from more effort to more Jesus. A reductive mindset is where we develop habitual ways of thinking, that repeatedly let go, surrender, renounce, and strip away the unnecessary. This reminds me of something else we find in Scripture where it talks about that we need to, we need to, to set aside the things that often bog us down, that slow us down, the things that, that, that disrupt us and, and, and pull us away from our walk with God. This is a portion, this teaching is a portion from a, a challenging and relevant uh, teaching that was done two years ago at the Global Leadership Summit, and today in sharing that with you, just to let you know, registration is open for the summit. It's happening again on August 5th and 6th, and Juliet Font will actually be sharing again on a completely new topic. But, but there's more than a dozen presenters from around the world, an incredibly diverse, yet unapologetically Christian delivery of, of content and teaching from people in their specialties. Every year, it's amazing what the summit is able to collect in one location and the content that they can share over the course of two days. Uh, for many folks in our congregation, just to share with you, they will actually, at, uh, often, we've had many people in our, in our family, church family, go and share this with a boss, an employer, uh, an owner of the company they work for, and the, the, the boss will sign off and say, hey, we'll pay for your registration and you can take two pay days because this is additional uh, developmental classes, continuing education credits that, that you might qualify qualify for. You don't know until you ask uh, if that might be the case. But the scope of this summit, it's not limited to just people in leadership management. They, they define the word leadership as influence. We all have people we're in relationship with. We have influence over. Are we maximizing that influence? And I promise you, every year you, you can pick up some printed materials at guest services to see the different presenters this year, and you'll be like, yeah, I don't know most of these names. And in a sense, we can kind of say, well, if there was a big name on there, that might draw me. But I can tell you for certain that, that normally every single year the top two speakers that connect with me are people I've never heard of before, but it's who God wanted me to hear from. So it's a matter of putting ourselves there in that room. Uh, and just so you know, too, we have a discounted rate being a host site. It's, it's live in Chicago, but we get to watch it here on our big screen coming down. It's only $79 for two days, which is more than, uh, it's about a third of the price of people who aren't, you know, a part of a local church that's hosting it have to pay to participate in the simulcast event. So this idea of white space teaches us to develop a reductive mindset where we develop habitual ways of thinking that repeatedly let go, surrender, renounce, and strip away the unnecessary. This is exactly what Paul does in the middle of part, uh, 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 middle part of Ephesians chapter 4. He's going to strip away the hierarchy of the religious systems of his day. He's going to strip away the pyramid of one person at the top that, that you, you try to as, uh, ascend the ladder to get to. And instead, Paul's going to talk more about a bridge and all of us collectively together as the body of Christ getting more people to come across the bridge with us. The nature of the mission of the church and God's design and giftings for the church. 
Because after all, Jesus is filling us as his body in every way, filling everything everywhere in every way with himself. This is what he says in verse 11. He says, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. Now, yet, he's not talking about churches in a building or an organization or an institution or denomination. He's talking about the body of Christ. That there are gifts that you've been given, gifts that I've been given to, to build up the church and to equip one another to do God's work. This will continue, he says, until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Now, Jesus, he's the head of the church, so he gets the privilege of setting and defining who the church is and how it's structured, how it's systematized. And he says, I've given you a five-fold gift mix in the church that you can refer to as APEST, kind of an acronym, Apostle, Prophet, Evangelist, Shepherd, Teacher. The apostle is that person that maybe is more of a risk taker. They like, they're entrepreneurial in spirit. They like to start things, start churches, start mission organizations, people that are apostolic, go places other people have never even thought about going and talking to people others have never thought about talking about or talking to. The second one is the prophet. The prophet, they're the truth tellers. They're, they're declaring what's true about God and about the nature of our world. Oftentimes, they're, they're looking at systems of power and speaking towards them. They're, they're seeking justice. They're, they're noticing where there's a drift in mission, and they're calling people back to the mission. They protect the marginalized. Then there's the evangelist, those who are other-centered. They're thinking about people that aren't yet a part of the family of God, and they're thinking about how we can creatively and effectively engage them with the gospel. They're thinking about people seeking truth, seeking answers, seeking hope, and they're reaching out to them. The evangelist is often the person that finds it very easy to just talk about their faith with somebody else. Then there's the shepherd. The church is filled with shepherds. We need shepherds. They're the nurturers. They offer care and listening and building community and relationships and health together. And then there's teaching. Those who are, are excited and passionate about sound doctrine and, 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 and the, the effective processes and systems in the church and our value system. They're, they're the ones that love content and curating content and delivering content to help shape the way we think. But then Paul continues, he talks about the implications of this structure God has designed in the church. But also, not just for the benefit of the church body, but also for the benefit of the world. I mean, we as the church, we're the people of God on mission from God to rescue those far from God, to bring them to Christ. So these gifts given by God's hand, they're beneficial for the body, but they're also beneficial for the body to share with the world. They might probably be more relevant on Thursdays and Tuesdays than they could ever be when we're all sitting in rows facing one direction on Sundays. I mean, when you think about it, when we gather on Sundays, we gather and there's just a few people on a platform that get to exhibit their gifts. That's not really God's end design of what the church is to be in the culture. It's for all of us to utilize our gifts the way God has given us in, in the circles in which we have relationships. So anyways, here's what Paul says about the, the implications of this five-fold structure God's designed. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to mature the church, to equip the church. He says, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to, try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more. That's our series anyways, right? We're made for more. We will speak the truth in love, 
growing in every way more and more. He's talking about the implications of the church because of this five-fold ministry focus. Grow more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. The first shift is kind of a shift away from ladders. It's a shift away from pyramids with one person at the point. It's a shift away from trying to scale up the hierarchy, and it's a shift to recognizing we're all missionaries. That it's really all of us together as the body, and then there's Christ that's the head. And not one of us, not, not any part of the body is better or more special or more unique, but all of us are a masterpiece mission with a specific role God has called us to play. And, and the, the, the Holy Spirit brings us together to work together perfectly. I mean, that's what he says in verse 16. He says, Jesus makes the whole body, he's the head, fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Do you have a sense of God's masterpiece mission in your life? Is there a hierarchy in your mind you're still trying to scale up? Is your ladder leaning against the right, right wall or the right, wrong wall? Do you see that you're a missionary and, and where you already are living life, God has created incredible opportunities. But maybe you need those moments of white space to stop and reflect so that you can throw off all those things that hinder. Scripture tells us that. Throw off the things that hinder and drag us down and slow us down from the life God's called us to, that oftentimes we put the burdens back on ourselves, and that's why we feel the burden, because we're accepting things that God has given us permission to place in his hands. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we just thank you so much for your Spirit's work in us. We don't deserve your Holy Spirit, and, uh, and yet you bless us with your presence and your leadership, and you invite us just to follow. Forgive us of those times, Lord, where we get out in front of ourselves and we try to make things happen. We declare what's true, that you're the one that controls harvests. You're the one that controls outcomes and results. Your challenge to us is to be faithful. And that's what Ephesians 4 is about. Just be faithful. Be faithful to be who you've called us to be and to be a part of a body where all of us together are accomplishing the work of your Spirit. That you are the head, Lord. That is unquestionable. And the body exists to be your hands and feet in this world, loving people into your kingdom. Would you show us the next step you have for us? Would you reveal that masterpiece mission to us? Would you reveal that gifting that you've placed within us? Would you speak to us about these four things identified in this teaching that, that some of us, maybe our drive is out of control. Maybe our goal for excellence and perfection is out of control. Maybe our desire for, for information is just exhausting people around us. Maybe we fill our schedule so much with activities that we don't have any time for reading your word, for prayer, for reflecting on you, that it's just busying our lives up. We ask you for wisdom, Lord, because you, you promise us you will give it. In your holy name we pray, amen.